Dave told me right before I started that I'm being recorded. So I think that was his reminder that I should behave myself. So maybe somebody should tell me I'm being recorded all the time. We're going to start with a prayer. Let us pray. O God, the Father of all, whose Son commanded us to love our enemies, lead them and us from prejudice to truth. Deliver them and us from hatred, cruelty, and revenge. And in your good time, enable us all to stand reconciled before you through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. My name is Carrie Willard. And I'm here from Houston, Texas. The title of my talk is, Do I Feel a Draft? Keeping the Door Open for Reconciliation. And um, I'm here from Houston, but I'm from Wisconsin originally, which is where this photo was taken by my dad. And that's kind of what reconciliation sometimes looks like in my family, where things just kind of blow up. Um, and the door's open, but it's not super pretty inside. Um, that's a real picture. I don't know, I don't remember why my dad was blowing up a woodshed that day, but I know there was a <laughs> burning permit situation going on that he was in a little bit of trouble. But anyway, we, we have photos like this um, from my childhood, and I'm going to show you some more photos from my childhood later. Um, when I think about reconciliation in kind of a general capital R kind of way, I don't think about my family. I usually think about it as someone else's problem these guys. People with flags behind them in rooms pointing at each other. Um, someone else's problem might be Korea had better get its act together someday, right? Like that's far away from me. What is up with Northern Ireland? Why are they still blowing people up? Um, I don't know what's happening in Gaza these days. My husband probably does. I'm guessing it's probably not good, whatever's happening in the Middle East. These are faraway places, and I can judge them from a nice, safe distance where I don't actually have to do anything. So reconciliation seems like a really good idea when it's somebody else's problem. And I'm really good at solving other people's problems. I bet you are, too. I bet everybody here is really good at solving other people's problems. Those people somewhere else have a lot of work to do. Me? I'm good. I'm good. I don't need to reconcile anything. Sure, I might remember the make, model, and license plate number of the guy who parked in my parking spot three years and two months ago. <laughs> but who's counting? It's not like I'm blowing up airplanes, right? <laughs> Everybody's got this guy in their lives, right? Everybody's got someone like this. I made that last part up. I don't even remember my own license plate number, let alone someone else's. But I think we all know what I mean. Those seemingly small things that start like a little grain of yeast... I don't know if any of you have made sourdough bread. I love to bake and cook. But if you start with a sourdough starter, you have to feed it. And then you have to like release the pressure every once in a while. And if you don't, you're going to end up with a broken mason jar of sticky goo all over your kitchen counter. Um, I don't know if that's ever happened to you. But that can kind of happen with unreconciled relationships in our lives. Um, we might have gone back and done something differently. We might stay up at night wondering how things might have been different if we'd only done something different with that sourdough starter. Um, but if, and if you don't have any situations like that in your life, then blessed are you. <laughs> you could probably teach this, this whole class about reconciliation. If you're looking for an informational session about how to reconcile with your friends and family, then I'm sorry to tell you that you're in the wrong place. I am going to tell you that you're not alone and that thankfully none of us has the final word. Um, I'm going to share with you um, some, some stories from one of the first pieces I wrote for Mockingbird, and it was about my sister. She's 10 years older than I am, and I haven't seen her in about 20 years. 
I will spare you the math of trying to figure out how old I am. I'll be 40 this year. She just turned 50, and we haven't seen each other since I was about 20 years old. She got in a fight with our parents that lasted from about the time I was 10 years old and through my high school years until finally their relationship dissolved. And my relationship with her was one of the casualties of that dissolution. I sometimes wish that things were different or that I could have done something to prevent this painful family rift. But whenever I wish something to be true, I think about my favorite clip from Grumpy Old Men. I don't know how many of you have seen this movie. We used to live in Minnesota, and this is my favorite movie from Minnesota. I'm done. Pop, I wish you'd try the low-fat bacon. Well, you can wish in one hand and crap in the other and see which gets filled first. Yeah, well, this wagon's got to get filled first. I'll be back. You can wish in one hand and crap in the other and see which one fills up first. I love that. So here's what I wrote about Renee a little bit in that Mockingbird piece and why our relationship was so important to me. Renee is the one in the flowered dress with the long, straight, blonde hair. I'm the little girl in front. This is before my brother was born. That's why I'm so happy. Um, and our sister Heather is in the glasses. Um, she and I still have a very close relationship. She and I are still in relationships. So when people hear me talk about my sister and I go to see my sister, I'm talking about Heather. Renee is the one I haven't seen in quite a long time. She's never met my husband. She's never met my children. I've never met her daughter. Um, but she was everything to me when I was a small child. She taught me nearly everything that I love doing now. She taught me how to solve math problems, how to give a speech. I probably would not be in front of a microphone right now if it weren't for Renee how to curtsy after a performance, how to sing harmony, how to bake brownies. She taught me how to read, which I think is one of the great pleasures in life. She taught me how to swim. She was a musical theater phenom in our hometown, and I memorized every musical she ever played in. At night, when I couldn't fall asleep, she'd sing old hymns or new show tunes to me. Got more pictures here. You can see how she's kind of hovering over me like a mother. Um, when she played a role in The Wizard of Oz, she took me on a stage afterwards to meet the Cowardly Lion, and I'll never forget it. My first bus trip was on a roller skating trip with her junior high friends, and I still remember her lifting me up to touch the roof of the bus. When our great-grandmother, in failing health, visited our home for the last time, Renee took me outside to go sledding and put on a show for the older relatives. After every trip down the hill, she would, she would have me um, take a bow so that everyone inside could see us. <laughs> they were all inside the warm house, and we were outside in the cold snow. And I'm sure she was just pretty much getting me out of their hair for the day, but I felt like we were on a very cold and damp Carnegie Hall stage that afternoon. The first year I went to church camp, I got really, really homesick. And so the next year, she signed up to, to be a counselor, so I'd go again. Um, she, if, I was, if she was bothered when I draped myself all over her high school friends as they played endless rounds of Pictionary and Trivial Pursuit, she didn't let on. Despite the decade that spanned between us, we were remarkably close. You can probably see from these photos that I'm sitting in her lap in most of them, or she's hovering near me like a protective mother hen. That's exactly how I remember being with her, and her absence has left a big hole in my life. So what do I do with this absence and with her presence, that still feels very much a part of who I am. I often imagine what reconciliation might look like if she showed up at my doorstep. If she showed up, I'd want to tell her that I love her, but I wouldn't know how to say it. 
I'd want to tell her that her leaving hurt, but that it didn't ruin my life. I'd want to explain to her the weird family math that her presence in my life meant so much more than her absence. I'd tell her that I will always, always leave the door open to her, but that I can't stand at an open door all day. Reconciliation might just mean walking away from that door for a while, not in anger, but in peace. I thought of this image of an open door. I don't know. Um, I have two kids and three dogs, and I feel like I stand at an open door a lot. And in Texas, that means mosquitoes come in and cockroaches come in. And I stand at this open door, and I'm waiting for someone to go in or out. And I say, often, I can't stand at this open door all day. I can't do this. Choose it, in or out, in or out, in or out. And I feel like telling Renee, that door is open all the time, but I can't stand there waiting all day for you to come in or out. When I tell people about Renee, they often ask if I try to contact her. The answer is yes and no. I faithfully send her Christmas cards and birth announcements when our babies were born and moving announcements when we moved to different states. These are big life event mailings that have a Google spreadsheet to track all of the recipient's addresses. I want to know that she knows where I am. And there's an undeniable tug on my heart when I put those cards in the mail or when her birthday passes or when I see her favorite kind of cake in a bakery window. And there's never an end to the love I have for her, even if I don't have a way to show it to her right now. I'll show you one more picture. This case is getting too serious and sad in here. This, my, life, my childhood was not so happy all the time. This is me with my brother. So after the brother was born, <laughs> that's my brother in the front. And I'm super happy to have my picture taken. I was super happy to have my sisters curl my hair that morning. He's happy because he didn't have to have his hair curled. But um, just, that's just in case I look too, too happy. Um, and I've never wondered, so I send all these cards and messages in the mail to her, and I've never wondered if these attempts at contacting her were wasted. Is there such a thing as wasted love, even in small token gestures? What if she throws the Christmas cards away, or someone intercepts them before she even receives them? If that happens, and nothing changes in her, the acts of love that I have sent her way along with the prayer and concern that go along with them, have changed me, even if they haven't changed her. They've kept my love for her alive, even if it's no longer a two-way street. Her place on my Google address spreadsheet is almost sacramental to me. It's a 21st century outward sign of my inward love for her. That place marker is one version of leaving the reconciliation door open, or at least not slamming it shut. In so many ways, I have to feel that God is holding that door open for us and holding on to that love for both of us, not on a spreadsheet, but in a deep well of love. Sometimes I watch my own two sons, even when they don't know that I'm watching. I've seen my older son, brown hair on the left. This happens a lot in our house. Um, I've seen him kiss my sleeping younger son on the head when he's asleep and tuck the covers around him. Even though my younger son will never know that he's being loved in that way because he's asleep, I know it, and so does his big brother. We know that he is loved and how he's cherished, and it makes me feel equally tender toward both of them, and I delight in their love for one another. Renee may never know that I'm sending her small acts of love, but I do, and I believe that God sees it, and I hope that he delights in it for both of us. And so our family math doesn't come to a nice, tidy sum at the end. There's no balanced equation, which sometimes drives me a little bit crazy. I like balanced equations. For all I know, Renee's dumping loads of love into the same deep, deep well. And God is collecting it there for both of us. 
There may be nothing that will make this mess of an equation into something satisfying, but I still think it's worth puzzling through it and sitting in the middle of it and loving her from within it. Sometimes it feels like that woodshed on fire in my first slide, and keeping the door open for a bit of a breeze is necessary to keep the whole building from exploding. And I've come to find out that most families don't have a tidy sum in their family math equations. I learned this when I was practicing law in Virginia, and I was um, doing estate work and trust and estate planning, and people would come in and say, we have a very unique situation. <laughs> and their very unique situation was the same unique situation I'd heard three times that week, which was that they wanted to exclude somebody from their estate plan. And um, this is a very serious um, very serious conversation for everyone involved, and no one takes that lightly. And I feel like that feels very permanent to people. Um, and I, I believe that it, it feels permanent because it is permanent in a way, but I don't feel that it's permanent in that God has the last word and that reconciliation can happen even if it's beyond the grave. Um, so another family that may have struggled with reconciliation, not just mine, is the royal family. It's been in the news for a new baby. I was hoping to like tease you all in with the new royal baby name, even if I didn't have it, but it's named Louis, in case you were wondering, brand new baby. But um, way before he was born, that's Queen Elizabeth II with a little beret, and that's her, that's her uncle David. Um, and I'm going to tell you a little bit about them. Um, I kind of became re-intrigued with their story, and I love that we have British flags in here, because it, it makes it really fun. Um, <laughs> I became re-intrigued with the royal family um, with the Netflix series The Crown. I don't know how many of you have watched The Crown. I love it so much. Um, if you haven't watched The Crown, you should know it follows the life of the young Queen Elizabeth from the time from just before she was crowned and through the early years of her reign as queen. Um, and if you haven't seen The Crown, you might have seen one of my favorite movies from a few years back, The King's Speech. I don't know how many of you have seen that. It's one of my favorites. If you haven't seen either one and you're not up on your 20th century British monarchy history, here's a brief recap. And by the way, everything I know about this comes from movies and TV, so don't pick me to be on your Trivial Pursuit team because that's very narrow, very limited what I know. Um, so King George V died in 1936, leaving the throne to his eldest son, David, who is known as Edward VIII. And so that's the uncle in the picture. David reigned for only one year, and then he abdicated the throne to his younger brother, George VI, was the king in the king's speech. He had um, speech difficulties in, this, in the movie, which is why the movie was made. He abdicated the throne. David abdicated the throne because he wanted to marry a divorced American woman. Clutch your pearls. Um, so this, this is all before Camilla and Diana and all those people. This is way back. King George VI died in 1952, leaving the throne to his oldest daughter, Elizabeth II, who is currently queen. So... Grandpa dies, Uncle David takes the throne for a year, then Daddy's the king, then the daughter's the queen. The crown focuses on the reign of Queen Elizabeth II. In season two of The Crown, because Nazis, <laughs> it is revealed that after his abdication, after he's no longer queen, so there's David in the middle, and his wife on your left, Wallace Simpson, and then we know who's on the far right. I don't want to say his name. Um, he colluded with the Nazis, betraying his country and Elizabeth's beloved late father, King George VI. 
This is revealed to Elizabeth at the same time that David asks her for permission to come home to England after his retirement in France. Doesn't he look like he's having a terrible time in France? So he has to go away to France after he marries uh, Ms. Simpson. They've got, they've got dogs. They've got France. But he, this is not enough for him. He wants to come back to England, and he wants a job. So he has to ask his niece, the Queen of England, for permission to come home to England after his retirement. In order to grant this permission, Elizabeth understands that she must forgive him for his misdeeds of the past. At the time that he asks, she thinks that his only misdeeds were this scandalous marriage to Wallace Simpson, along with some obnoxious insults directed toward his niece, the queen herself. So he called her Shirley Temple. He wasn't very nice to her, but he's think, she's thinking that this is really all that's at issue. So she's really thinking about forgiving him. Um, when it is revealed that his betrayal of his family and his country were much more grave, Elizabeth feels deeply the possible consequences of her forgiveness. This is more, she realizes this is more than just a family rift. So here he is asking, this is in the TV show. Isn't it beautiful, these photos? So it's a beautiful series, the Netflix series. So he's asking her, and she's really considering whether to forgive him. At the same time, at least in the television series, we don't know if these actually happened at the same time, but in the TV series, they kind of make it all work out. So at the same time, Queen Elizabeth takes an interest in the televangelist Billy Graham. It is worth watching this whole show just to hear the Queen Mother say, I don't understand what's so special about a brush salesman from North Carolina. <laughs> so my husband's from North Carolina, and so we watch that scene over and over again. I don't understand what's so special. North Carolina. So with, she wants to have him preach at the castle. And the, the aides are like, but he's not a part of the Church of England. And she said, no, I really want him to. So she asked him to preach at All Saints Chapel at Windsor. And she's so moved by Graham's words about sin and takes them to heart as she's making this very difficult decision about whether and how to forgive her uncle. After the queen has heard Billy Graham preach, and at the same time, at least in this Netflix series, she learns about the depth of her uncle's betrayals, David meets with her at Buckingham Palace to ask her for a job under her monarchy. She turns down his request, and then she feels guilt for her denial. With her reflections with Billy Graham about her identity as, this is her words in the series, just a simple Christian, she wants very earnestly to forgive her uncle's misdeeds. She consults with her husband, so Prince Philip, who's a mess in his own right, um, and he, like, in my mind, he should be enthusiastically for her forgiving anybody, because if anybody needs forgiveness from the queen, it's Prince Philip. And there's another, I wrote another whole Mockingbird piece about Prince Philip because he's such a hot mess. But he's saying, please, please don't forgive your uncle. It's such a bad idea. And so then she goes to talk to her late father's trusted advisor, the king's old advisor. And they both say, please don't, please don't give your job. Please don't give your uncle a job. Don't do that. Um, she says it's her Christian duty as the ruler of a Christian nation to forgive. And she struggles with this, even as she hears more details of her uncle's betrayal of his own countrymen. They can't even get the words out in the series when they're talking about the Nazis. They can't, all these people come together, and the queen just really wants to know what happened. And they have a really hard time telling her that this betrayal was so, so deep. In the end, the queen denies her uncle's request for a job. And she reminds him that under the terms of his abdication of the throne, he only has permission to return to Great Britain at the pleasure of the monarch which the, she then explicitly denies. She says, you can't even come visit. In response, David just hurls insults at her. He attacks her directly, and he, he attacks her beloved late father. She speaks back. There is no possibility of my forgiving you. 
the question is, how on earth can you forgive yourself? So we don't really know exactly which words were spoken between Elizabeth and David or whether she consulted Billy Graham about her internal dilemma. But Graham reminds her that nobody is beneath forgiveness. And even when Jesus was dying on the cross, he asked God to forgive those who killed him. The queen gently pushes back. And I love this conversation between the two of them because the queen is the head of the Church of England and she can't have a pastoral relationship with the clergy of the Church of England when she's their head. So, but she can have this pastoral relationship with Billy Graham, have this very um, deep, interesting conversation with him. So she's pushing back when, when he says, nobody's beneath forgiveness. And she says, when Jesus forgave the people who crucified him, he himself said, they know not what they do. She sees this as kind of a conditional forgiveness. And if maybe if they had done this knowingly, maybe they would be unforgivable too. At this point, and Billy Graham is saying, no, you have to forgive, you have to forgive, you have to forgive. You kind of want to whisper through the TV screen, she's talking about Nazis. Like, this is all about the Nazis. This is a big deal. Um, and it's the same feeling a lot of us get when reading Jesus' words about forgiving 70 times seven times. Really? Even the Nazis? We're supposed to forgive them 77, 70 times seven times. The fictional Graham continues, God himself forgives us all. Who are we to reject the example of God? And the queen, who now has a freshly lowered anthropology because she realizes what a loser her uncle was, she's like, wait, we're just mere mortals. We're not God. How can we forgive if we're just mere mortals? So then Graham keeps on having this conversation with her. Billy Graham says, one asks for forgiveness oneself, humbly and sincerely, and one prays for those that one cannot forgive. So the next scene shows Elizabeth alone on her knees, praying in the chapel, and again on her knees in her bedroom at night, really struggling and praying about this. So then her husband, the tipsy Prince Philip, comes in. He's a mere mortal, like the rest of us. He comes in and he congratulates her because he'd heard that she said no to her uncle, that she denied him a job in England. Um, and she confesses to her husband that she still thinks that her inability to forgive her uncle was a failure of Christianity, a failure of her own faith. Philip reminds her that she protected her country and the reputation of her family. This is really hard stuff. And most of us don't have national security interests in mind. But we, don't, we often don't find neat, tidy answers to the difficult work of reconciliation. When we are called to forgiveness, even 70 times 7, there's no deadline attached to it. And there's nothing that says that we should be expected to do it alone. The words of the baptismal covenant come to mind, I will with God's help. We might even, as the fictional Billy Graham of this episode suggests, ask God forgiveness for our inability to forgive. There's great freedom in that for me, asking forgiveness for my inability to forgive. And sometimes when reconciliation and forgiveness become law, instead of reminders of God's grace towards us, they don't become any easier to achieve. And forgiveness does not always mean that we let the wolf back into the chicken coop. That would be cruel to both the wolf and the chickens and the farmer who has to clean up the whole mess. We have to be careful when we paint broad brushstrokes about forgiveness, remembering that the victims of domestic abuse have been told for generations by the church that they should forgive their abusers to keep the peace. I don't think that means that we should give up on forgiveness and reconciliation altogether. I think we do need to remember that we need God's help to forgive and that sometimes God's timeline is not on our calendar. 
Forgiveness may not always look like we think it should, with everyone hugging and getting a nice, cushy government job at the end of the episode. Sometimes forgiveness can also come with serious heartbreak and firm boundaries, as it did with the Queen and her Uncle David. I loved this episode of The Crown so much for its glimpse into the Queen's struggles to try to piece together a broken family and looking to Jesus as her guide. The episode showed how deeply unsatisfying it was for the Queen to not have a tidy answer to the problem of her uncle and his misdeeds, and how she still turned to God even when she was not getting the answers that she thought she might want. I'm so grateful that we can all ask for God's help to keep the proverbial reconciliation door open for all the times that we can't, even when we, the royal we maybe, wear a heavy crown on our heads. There are echoes of this in the Queen's words that we are mere mortals. So God save the Queen and God save us all. The examples of my sister and the Queen are messy, but they're still both examples of the person seeking reconciliation being somewhat distant from the actual conflict. It's no accident that I picked photos of my family when I was a toddler. That's when Renee and I cemented our relationship, but it's also a time when I was an innocent player in the family drama. It's not an ocean away with car bombs and centuries-old strife, but it's still distant from my own actions. I started reflecting on this a while ago when my husband and I started watching Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee, another Netflix favorite. We landed on this series at the suggestion of Sarah Condon, She suggested it to us. So after we wrapped up the last season of The Crown, we were kind of on a history streak, and we wanted to absorb more history, so of course we turned to drunk history. Seen it? It's horrible. It's horrible. It's people getting drunk and then talking about history. But guess what else drunk people do? They throw up. On screen. Like, I don't do that. Mama, don't play that game. So I see enough of that in my real life. So we had to move away from drunk history. And Sarah suggested Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee, which is a show where Jerry Seinfeld rents or borrows or buys. I don't know how he gets these cars. He, he, owns, he owns all these cars. Thank you, RJ. He owns a million and two cars. I think that's the exact number. Um, and he goes and picks up other comedians and actors, and they go and get coffee together. It's oddly soothing. It's great laundry folding watching because it's soothing and it's, it's delightful. Um, it's oddly soothing for me. I don't know why. There's an episode with Jim Carrey where they're going into this coffee shop and Jim Carrey sees like a child's sweater on the ground and he puts it on and he's a big dude. I don't know. It reminds me of my brother. It makes me, it makes me laugh. So I, I love this show. Um, there's one episode in particular that we're going to watch a little bit of. Um, Jerry meets up with Allie Wentworth. She might be best known as George Stephanopoulos' wife, but she's also a hilarious entertainer in her own right. Um, the theme of the episode with Jerry Seinfeld is Allie's background, and I think she would describe it as extreme wasp. Um, she, and she's kind of proud of this. But she and her husband, she and George Stephanopoulos, are also good friends with Jerry Seinfeld and his wife. Um, and so there's a clip here about how couples sometimes fight and how we then deconstruct that fight later and describe our own role in these conflicts. Let's see if this will play. Soothing. I heard a good line recently. Yeah. What is a trick to a long marriage? Don't get divorced. It's a little dumb. What do you mean? <laughs> Nobody just wants a long marriage. It's like having a long oh, leg. Like, but I like the simplicity of it. Yeah, it's simple because it's devoid of thought. <laughs> As you know, there's nothing more than I love than another couple having problems. Yes, I think of it as battle because you know how to kill. You know the weapons they have. You know their hideaway. Like, if you know all that stuff. I want to know what we're talking about here. It has to be specific. What right. is the fight? I'm going to give you the latest fight. OK. All right, so I've hurt my leg. 
I mean, I am bandaged up, up on pillows, and I can't walk. What, did you just scrape it on a rock? Falling into the rocks. But I'm telling you, it was down and it opened, and you could carve your initials <laughs> on my bone. It was, there, there was the bone. And by the way, if I showed you a photograph of the wound, which he was sent from the hospital, you would vomit in your mouth. I'm back from Iraq. That's how bad it was. So the first thing George said to me after I called him, after I've come out of the operating room where I was under general anesthesia, was, you better rest up. There's, you have a lot of unpacking to do. All right, I'm going to take a Percocet and let that one go. If there's another one, I'm going to grenade up. But right now, I'm just going to let that go. So we go back to the city in silence in the car. You're in the fight. Yeah. OK, we're in it We're now. not screaming. It's right. silence. And that's a bad one. If you shift or anything in the car, it just it echoes like a smashed glass on slate. The drive felt like two days, you know, just <laughs> seething. Now, so, what is he upset about? That's what I can't figure out. <laughs> when people tell you a story of some horrible incident, the way they portray themselves yeah. in the story is unbelievably reasonable. So I'm beating a homeless man <laughs> with a golf club. Not because I'm angry, but just because he didn't belong there. Right. Their side of it is always so reasonable. Yeah. We have talked about the style in which we fight, which has changed. You're not allowed to get ghetto. You're not you and George would get ghetto? I'm speaking for myself. Here's what I learned. The more I really do listen to him, without just going like, go ahead, say, what's your thing, what's your thing, what's your thing? Well, I really listened to him. I realized he's just going, how is our world going to work if Allie's not up? Now, what do I have to do to ensure that when I'm down, I have adequate backup? This is all like cop drug unit talk, by the way. <laughs> I'm down, backup. Yeah. Do you have like a walkie in, in your <laughs> house? Fun. I love it when anybody can make Jerry Seinfeld laugh like that. Like, he lost his power of speech at one point. I think there's so much great stuff just in that little clip. But what I really love is Jerry Seinfeld talking about people telling stories about themselves and portraying themselves as unbelievably reasonable. I totally do that all the time. <laughs> it's easy enough to portray myself as unbelievably reasonable in my stories about my sister because I was a child when everything kind of fell apart. The queen had no role in her uncle's betrayals. She was just left to clean up the mess afterward. But there are plenty of times that I'm not unbelievably reasonable. I'm a lawyer by training, and I'm not actively practicing law in Texas. I'm still licensed in the Commonwealth of Virginia, which means that I receive the Virginia Lawyer Register every month. It has wonderful articles about the highly professional things that lawyers are doing in Virginia. I don't know if you can read them from here. Young Lawyers Conference continues to strive Slammin' Ammon's softer side. I don't know who Slammin' Ammon is. Atkins test withstands challenges. That sounds like a court case. I don't know. Virginia veteran and attorney receives Purple Heart. That's so nice. Second chances through drive to work. I don't know what any of these things are because I flip directly to the um, disciplinary records that are held in this to see which lawyers have gotten in trouble. I want to make that clear. I hate stalk a professional magazine for a profession that I no longer participate in. <laughs> that is next level unreasonableness. We all do this. Jim Gaffigan has a great bit in one of his comedy specials about McDonald's. I think there was a Mockingbird piece about this. He says that nobody admits to eating at McDonald's, but they sell six billion hamburgers every year, and there's only 300 million people in this country. And while he's not a calculus professor, you can kind of figure out the math that someone's lying. Um, but he says even if you don't eat at McDonald's, you've got something like McDonald's in your life. You know it's bad for you, but you can't help yourself. He says that if you know who Jennifer Aniston is dating, that's your McDonald's. <laughs> he's describing sin. 
If you're in a great place with your family and your in-laws and your neighbors and your kids' teachers and your boss and the PTO president, then there's something else that you're living with, which might just be your self-righteousness about how everything is going so great in your life. Uh, me, I hate stalk the Virginia Lawyer Register. I had to take Facebook off my phone, which might be the 21st century version of cutting off the hand that causes me to sin. I am inherently and unbelievably unreasonable. And the more interactions we have with people, the more opportunities we have to be unbelievably reasonable. I am a daughter and a sister, but I'm also married, and I have two kids, and three dogs, and a full-time job. I have a lot of interactions with people. On top of that, my husband is the rector or the head pastor at a large church. So many interactions with people. It's kind of like, you know, the more miles you drive in a car, the more likely you are to get in an accident. Sometimes they make you buy extra insurance. Um, I have so many collisions every day, not in my car, but verbally, that I feel like I need human interaction insurance. Social media is the opposite of human interaction insurance for me. And occasionally, this is where I am, I'm going to paint myself a little bit unbelievably reasonable. Sometimes people are kind of mean to me on social media when it has nothing to do with me. They're mad at my husband, they're mad at the world, or the church, or God, and they think I'm an easy target, which I think is kind of adorable, that they think I'm, I'm easy to pick on. I've had to do a mercy blocking of one or two of these people, which kind of feels like a mean thing to do, but it's in everybody's best interest, to kind of take the driving metaphor a little bit further. If I hit enough potholes on one road, I'm going to stop driving on it. Um, on one such occasion, someone from church had singled me out, and I blocked him. A few weeks later at church, I noticed him passing the peace with people around me at the Easter vigil service, which is my favorite church service of the whole year. It's the night before Easter morning, and it's beautiful, and Christ is risen. Lord is risen indeed. I'm so excited. And I put on my big girl reconciliation pants, and I smiled, and damn it, I extended my hand ready to wish him a happy Easter and the peace of the Lord. And he gave me the cold shoulder on Easter. And I'll be honest, I was hurt. I was ready to extend that tiny olive branch, and he rejected it. But here's where my unbelievably reasonable part ends. I laughed. I laughed out loud when he rejected my peace offering. There was a time that I would have left crying, and I, I have done that. Um, and I laughed because this guy just proved my point that he's a total jackwagon. I won at reconciliation. <laughs> Match, set, checkmate, I won. The end, he forfeited the game, I won at being the better person, and I was so proud of myself. Um, I, was gonna, I was not going to go home and cry about it, I was going to go home and write about it, which makes me the jack wagon. Should I really be so thrilled that someone else failed? Can a person really win reconciliation? I became, I don't know if you remember the, the crazy lady in the Target ads a few years ago that was going to win Christmas. She's hilarious and terrifying. Nobody wants to sit with her at the Christmas party. Nobody. Um, so I, I became that person, and I was not unbelievably reasonable. Uh, Fleming Rutledge's beautiful book about the crucifixion, which I think is available at the book table here, she reminds us that any reconciliation on this side of the grave is temporary. Like healing, it will be imperfect, and we cannot expect kingdom perfection in this world. Even if my sister reconciled with my family, I know that my life would not be perfect. Even if that social media bully had shaken my hand at the Easter vigil, our truce would probably be short-lived. I don't know if God wants us to remain divided, but I do know 
that God does not enjoy our pain. I believe that God aches with us and grieves with us and longs with us for reconciliation. Even when we feel that some permanent damage has been done, God has the last word and continues to love us through our failed attempts at making things right on the side of the grave. So no amount of social media blocking or writing people out of our last will and testament or avoiding family reunions can erase the love that God keeps for us. Even when the door feels like it has been slammed shut, God can make a way to open it and hold it open when we just can't. I believe that God holds on to the broken, imperfect love that we try to show one another, and he keeps it for us.